0: Oh, and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, I'm with Jenny Chandler, whose book, A Good Appetite, is all about eating the planet, body and soul.
1: It's just like that whole thing of digging around, finding which vegetables were still lurking, you know, and trying not to have that one potato left over or that two sticks of celery or whatever it is and just doing a whole sweep getting it into a really delicious soup and then you kind of start again.
0: Now, you'll know that this is a subject particularly close to my heart. My book, Taste, and the TV Chef, looked at the influence TV chefs have had and could have in changing the way we eat. And my podcast for Leon was called How to Eat to Save the Planet. My podcast for Compassion in World Farming and the Food Foundation and this podcast itself are rooted in the interdependence between food, health, soil and planet. So you'll forgive me if I began Jenny, who shares my passion if we're getting anywhere?
1: Well, frustratingly, no, we're not making enough impact. It's not moving quickly enough, but I, I just can't give up on it. Um, I just feel like you know, the more people that we can somehow get the message out to, we're all approaching those sustainability messages in slightly different ways. We just can't give up. We can't afford to give up. So I I do feel that there is some momentum there. And what I wanted to do with this book was give bite-sized bits of information and try and kind of just sort of trigger uh, some kind of positivity in people about sort of small steps they could make to, to eating and shopping in a greener way. So rather than it being a book that looked into one particular area, such as, you know, eating less meat or soil health, it was to give a bit of a a sort of a rounded view that people could dip in and out of and take what they wanted from. And in a way, trying to take away some of the guilt about this whole kind of... Green issue. It's it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? In a sense, you, you. I mean, you've got
0: it all there. Eat less meat. Use up waste. Uh, eat more pulses. You know, all the stuff that we need to do. I don't think it's very difficult. I'm, I'm sitting next to Henry Dimbleby's book, Ravenous, here, which I haven't read yet, and uh, I'm going to get on the show soon. He gave up his job as food czar for the government, didn't he? Because the government reneged on its commitment to the national food strategy. I work with the Food Foundation. I work with Compassion and World Farming. You know, I'm constantly banging this drum. We don't seem to be getting anywhere. And it's interesting that you use words like guilt. You know, we're all in this together. I simply don't understand why we have to tiptoe around this issue. We absolutely have to eat 30% less meat. Yeah, I don't understand why anybody eats factory farmed chicken when they know what happens to those chickens. It's absolutely beyond me. And I'm feeling a bit cross about it now. I don't want to be going in gently. And I don't want to have to message
1: carefully.
0: I mean, you go and you talk to people, you do much more face to face stuff than I do.
1: What is the problem? Well, I suppose the first problem that people will always give is price. But I just feel like no, but it's cheaper, Jenny, and you know it's cheaper. I know it's cheaper for us to eat more pulses, more grains, a more plant-focused diet. Absolutely. And it's healthier. And it's healthier. But I think so much of it is habit. And, you know, I do a lot of work with big contract catering chefs trying to get them to yeah. put more plants onto their menus. Not saying, oh, you need to make your entire, you know, menu vegan. Or it, it's not about that. It's about, you know... Cutting down and giving people other options. But I think so much of it is habit and what people expect to see on the plate. And it just seems extraordinary that, yes, with with what we've got to lose, that people just can't, you know, make those changes. But also, so much of it is sadly down to the massive advertising that so much of the ultra-processed food gets. Um, the fact that big supermarkets are sticking that bargain meat under your nose as you walk into the supermarket you know we 're into barbecue season now, and you just see kind of acres of plastic sausages made with God knows what there for people to snap up and and people just still aren 't thinking about the consequences. I still think it 's extraordinary that people don't put two and two together, that connection between the meat that's sitting in the plastic packet in the supermarket and the fact that there are no bees or butterflies kind of flying around in the local park. It's just people are not, still not making those connections. So in a way, you know, I feel we've just got to take this as a sort of multi-pronged attack. And my book was... Um, in essence, a way of trying to be positive about all sorts of different things that people can do, giving them lots of recipes that hopefully inspire them to do that. And yes, I do, you know, give two page accounts of for instance, why the soil matters. But I'm trying really in the book to give people lots and lots of options of of things they can cook and things they can do really easily to make more small steps of change. And I I agree with you. It's utterly frustrating that we have to kind of pussyfoot around the issue. But but it just seems like people are extraordinarily stubborn and people are very, very set in their ways. And you know, we don't seem to be able to frighten people out of, you know, what they're doing. So so we've got to encourage them, you know, I think it has got to be the current carrot rather than the stick approach, because that seems to be what people maybe respond to better.
0: I mean, I wonder if it's about waking people up, it feels to me, that people are sleepwalking through their lives. You know, generally, people have been put to sleep. They don't care about the onset of AI. They don't care about the commodification of food. They don't care about the fact that people are just getting bigger and bigger. and on. You know, we know all this information it's out there all the time, but people don't seem to connect with it. But taste and flavour seems to wake people up. There's something really interesting happening with food. It is becoming more vegetarian or plant forward. That awful phrase, um, but you know, we are finding amazing flavors from our wonderful, diverse culture. As it becomes more and more interesting, we be- get more flavors, and and that wakes people up. Suddenly, suddenly, people are. finding you know that they're barbecuing aubergines and putting a bit of harissa on it and you know a bit of whipped feta and suddenly they go oh actually this is really nice and I can't remember when I last ate any meat what are you finding again when you do your cooking demonstrations what is the feedback that you're getting from people when you do these more plant forward recipes
1: actually to be honest with you um with some people almost astonishment. I mean, I find it absolutely extraordinary that you can have a group of chefs and we'll cook um, some more plant-focused food with them during the day. And then we sit down and eat it at lunchtime. And they will actually sort of say, wow, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting this depth of flavour. And it's that whole thing. I know it's a bit of a cliche, this whole thing of um you know diving into the world of umami but you know all these amazing kind of seaweeds which are more accessible now um and then the whole world of fermentation which you know we've we've lived with fermentation you know since the doc uh, we've been making bread and cheese and all these things but but the new world of fermentation to us in this country anyway of things like all the, the sauerkrauts and the kimchis and all those kind of things yes i mean you can create extraordinary depths of flavour without using meat. And I'm not, you know, an advocate for saying we must never go anywhere near near meat again. It's just that thing of just having it occasionally or using it almost like the, you know, the cherry on the cake rather than it being the, the main player. And yes, there are so many fantastic ingredients. I mean, I think a lot of the Middle Eastern ingredients, the sort of sumac and the pomegranate molasses, and and then all those Mm. things like, um, you know, dried amchur, you know, the dried sour mango from India, all these things which are accessible now to us and and are really, you know, sustainable because they're dried, they come in a jar, they sit on your shelf for a few months. Um, Yes, I, I absolutely agree with you that, that it's about getting people excited about the other options uh, and giving, yes, direction and a little bit of help of of how to get those amazing depths of flavour from more sustainable food. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, you do go into a lot of the detail. I mean, tell us a little bit about soil health. It is the most important thing, literally, on the planet
1: Well, I mean, for instance, I think people just do not realise when they're treading on the soil that in a teaspoon of soil that there are more tiny, tiny little beings in there than there are humans on the entire planet. Um, And we daily, as we consume all this food from monocultures that are, you know, basically compacting the soil, we're using fertilisers, we're basically pulling out the nutrients out of the soil... That, that soil is getting depleted season after season. Um, you know, and there are the, the mentions of the 60 harvests left. And, and we really, really should be worrying about that. You know, it's not just the fact that the the soil is becoming depleted of nutrients and life. It's the fact that the soil is bound by all the the fungi, the mycelium, Um, which stops it washing away. You know, we're having all this terrible flooding. It's connected. The one thing I thought as I was writing this book is it's extraordinary how we forget that everything is interconnected. We're interconnected with the soil. We're interconnected with the plants we eat. Everything we do, and in a way it's quite, you know, exciting because it means every step we make to do something a little bit more sustainable is not only good for us, for our for our own system and our own gut and our own health. But but those very same changes affect the environment around us. Because, you know, I know I bang on about pulses ad infinitum, but you know, for instance, you take pulses and there you've got a crop which we've been growing for thousands of years, which actually is capable of, you know, with the help of bacteria, putting nitrogen back into the soil. And, you know, it's fantastic ground cover. It's brilliant for feeding animals. It's absolutely fabulous for us because it has all this fibre that most of us are woefully lacking in our diets. So it's good for slowing down our digestive system so that we're not wanting to eat a chocolate bar five minutes after lunch. And it's also really good for our gut flora. You know, it's it's ticking so many boxes <laughs> and you just think... How can it be so you know interconnected and so fabulously simple just by making one change to do so much yeah. and yet we're not and yet we're not doing it it's bonkers yeah, I, the way i
0: see it is you know the soil is dead the monocultures are beige you know there's nothing happening our gut is unexcited and just existing everything's boring until you connect with the soil you wake it up. You put the nutrients back in. You save the planet. You save your gut. Your skin comes alive. Your hair looks great. Your eyes become bright again. You know, that's the difference, isn't it?
1: And it's cheaper. I think it's cheaper if you have the time to seek out these alternatives which would be the argument lots of people will make but those alternatives i don't agree
0: no no and and jenny i'm just going to say absolutely not because butter beans or any beans in a can from the supermarket are absolutely just as good aren't they put a tin of beans and put it in a pan fry it up with a little olive oil and put a tomato in and uh, with it and it's absolutely fantastic
1: lunch. I, I absolutely agree with you. But the, but the argument that I come up against all the time is this, you know, but it's the time of cooking it. And what you've just told me took two seconds, as long as putting a ready meal into a microwave would have taken. But again, it's almost the time, the input of teaching people again, how to do these things. and And I do get a bit frustrated with the cooking on tv so much of the time i just think Ugh. there's so much faffy poncy might you know i hate to say it but sort of master chefery, which is interesting oh,
0: it's bring back jamie oliver i say
1: you know it's 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 interesting tv and it is fascinating and these people are incredibly talented but what i think it does is it makes people think that's what cooking is it's all this <laughs> poncy faffing around when actually you know I cooked up some chickpeas earlier in the week and yesterday I literally just warmed them with some olive oil and put some sumac on the top of them and put a few salad leaves that the slugs hadn't eaten in my garden and shoved that on the top and it was absolutely delicious and took no time at all. But it's the confidence. People just somehow have kind of lost the confidence of being able to do those things because
0: cooking is not taught properly in schools and parents have to go out to work so they don't teach their children how to to, to cook. I mean, you, we we all know why it is. It's just that we have seriously lost our connection with it. Let's go through some of your food moments to bring that connection back. I mean, your mother wasn't an adventurous cook, you say. Um, your first food
1: moment is is good old roast chicken. Good old roast chicken because it really was a kind of a roast was a once a week treat. And that smell of roast chicken coming out of the oven, the kind of crispy, salty skin. Um, I, still now, when I open oven having roasted chicken at home now, it brings back all those memories. And, you know, my daughter, her favourite, favourite meal of all is a roast chicken. But nowadays, we have that once a month. There's a fantastic lady who comes to our local market with chickens from her small holding. And that is the only chicken we have in the month. And that chicken lasts us for four meals because I kind of crowd out the chicken with massive amounts of wonderful vegetables. And the gravy, you know, that you've made with the wonderful juices is what absolutely makes the meal. And we really celebrate that. So I sort of feel that, yes, it's my first Real food memory, I would say, uh, back at home. And it's something that I like to continue, but but now it's once a month rather than... Possibly once a week. I I totally
0: agree with you. And I think that the roast chicken, a lot of people talk about the roast chicken. It kind of sums up everything that we've talked about. It is full of food memories. It fills the house with pleasure, but it it polarises our culture. A lot of people are buying that chicken from a farm where the chicken has never left the farm, for example. That's what we do. Mm. And most people are buying factory farm chicken and eating it a couple of times a week, three or four times a week sometimes. And that chicken has had a terrible life. And it's... And it basically, it usually tastes of nothing. It tastes of nothing. Also. The effluent mm, kills all the fish in the rivers. You know, it is about
1: as awful as it can be. It's that whole thing of really focusing on when you buy special things, making them... Really, really last over a number of meals and really enjoying every single bite. I strip all the skin off the carcass, anything that we haven't eaten, and then crisp that when I'm using the oven for something else and make these sort of shards of fantastically flavoured, sort of salty crispiness that just get sprinkled on top of, I don't know, some potatoes or a salad. And that's another sort of chicken flavoured meal. Absolutely.
0: Your second food moment is another example of using everything, making the most of seasonal produce and, and leftovers. Tell us about the Pantanella salad.
1: Well, the Panzanella, that really came... I used to work as a chef on sailing boats uh, years and years ago. And it was funny. I'd trained at Leith's and I really expected, um, because I was going to be cooking for, you know, rather rich people, it all to be about extravagant food. And I was very, very lucky. I ended up working for a wonderful Italian family. And the owner's wife used to come down into the galley and sort of chat to me about what we were going to cook for the day. And... She taught me about, you know, using the Parmesan rind almost like a stock cube and using up every last bit of risotto. And then the panzanella salad was always about using up... I used to make the bread on the boat um, because we were often, you know, out at sea um, or in areas without a local bakery for weeks on end. So I'd make really good bread and, you know, once in a while there would be a bit left over. And panzanella, if you've got good bread and some sort of tomatoes that are almost on the edge, because as we all know, you don't want to put your tomatoes in the fridge because it kills the flavour. So inevitably, once in a while, you have some tomatoes that are, a, you know, a bit ripe and slightly sort of um, squashy. And and it's all about really simple ingredients, but fantastic olive oil, just some onion, the tomatoes, the bread, tiny dash uh, of vinegar, and, and, and that's it. And then, you know, optional are things like the, the basil, and then, you know, you can put other bits and pieces in. But for me, that Pansanella dish sums up what you can do with stuff that possibly some people would almost be throwing away. And it's one of the most delicious dishes on the planet and actually you know once you've made it once that
0: is the skill learnt isn't it but what it does is it inspires you to think about every ingredient that's lurking at the back of your fridge or in the in the fruit bowl you know just to look at it and you do it again with banana bread in, in your fourth food moment but it is
1: about saying "Hmm, what can i do with this i try about once a week to do a kind of fridge sweep soup You know, we have like, well, we did at one stage, I'm not doing right now, but Monday minestrone. And it was just like that whole thing of digging around, finding which vegetables were still lurking, you know, and trying not to have that one potato left over or that two sticks of celery or whatever it is. And just doing a whole sweep, getting it into a really delicious soup. And then you kind of start again. So, yes, it's getting into a habit of really thinking of using things up, and also not being worried about running out of mm. stuff. It's quite odd. I think nowadays, you know, people are, are terrified of, you know, running out of bread. Well, if you run out of bread, eat something else, you know, just, um, it, it's, it's it's almost like we're all kind of, um, Buying for Armageddon, you know, we've we've all got these massive stores of stuff in our in our cupboards, as if we're never going to go shopping again. And I mean, even during COVID, we all learnt that actually, you know, you might not have been able to get your kind of favourite brand of pasta or or loo paper for that matter, but you could always feed yourself. You know, there was food to go around. And so, I I think yes, we. We over stockpile, you know, we're all like squirrels putting all this stuff into cupboards that we just don't need to. That implies a kind of an anxiety about it. I
0: think it's more to do with the sleepwalking thing. I think then we don't have to think of anything. So when you run out of bread, you just literally go and get some more without thinking, ah, do I need that? I don't think I mean you just literally get in the car, go to the supermarket, mm. go down the aisles. Everything's the same as it was last week and, it, and next week. You don't even think. And that comes from a dead gut. You know, that comes from mm. walking on dead soil, that total lack of connection. Your third food moment, though, is, you know, an example of how to wake up. If you've got lentils in a jar in your store cupboard in your pantry, whatever you call it. Mine's a drawer. Um, <laughs> you can start with that and st- and then look at the back of your fridge and see what to add to it. Tell us about dal.
1: Well, dal, I sort of probably came to in my late 20s, 30s. It wasn't the first sort of pulse dish that I came across. But um, when I started cooking dal, I just thought, gosh, this is a no brainer. I can't believe that this hasn't been kind of part of my diet since, you know, um, since I was little. Because quite honestly, that idea that you can just put any split pulse, well, I mean, in fact, a whole pulse eventually will turn into a dal. But dal um, is usually made with a split pulse into a pot with some water and... Maybe a bit of garlic, ginger and turmeric is the sort of starting point normally. But, you know, there are millions of different variations of a dal and that's the exciting thing about it as well. But the fact that you can just literally put that in a pot and nowadays I'll often put it in a pressure cooker and therefore it takes literally five minutes now and, and you've got something sustaining and comforting. And by the time you put that kind of traditional... Um, tempering the tadka or the, the seasoning on the top, you know, you fry up what you've got. You know, it's that whole thing of having a, having a little look in the cupboard and frying up, I don't know, some chilies and a little bit of, um, some cumin seeds and maybe some fresh coriander, putting that on the top. And you have got a bowl of something so utterly delicious. And if you happen to have a bit of flatbread, you know, it doesn't have to be a traditional Indian bread. It could be a bit of pita bread. I mean, it could even be a slice of toast. It doesn't matter. Um, Then you've also got an extraordinarily nutritious meal as well. And it's cheap. And it's so simple to prepare. And I actually, when I've gone into primary schools to do um, cooking sessions, we've often made a pot of dal at the front of the class because of the utter simplicity of it and then the kids have all mixed up their different sort of tadka seasonings to go on the top so that they feel creative and get involved with it but it's yes it's just extraordinarily simple and so so wonderful
0: to eat yeah, absolutely, which is what I'm having for my lunch today. Because Talking about kids, you've produced two kids' books, um, Cool Kids Cook and Green Kids Cook. I mean, I do lots of volunteering at the Brighton Community Kitchen, work with, with year four kids, and they just love it. There's not one kid that goes, hmm, don't really like cooking. They love it. They love chopping up onions and they love being able to create something. It's alchemy. It's magic, isn't it? Tell me about some of the, the response you get from the kids that you're, you're cooking with.
1: Uh, Just pure excitement, joy, as you say. I mean, I just think that whole thing of touching food, smelling food, and, you know, often with ingredients that they haven't seen or or tasted before is excitement. And, And I also think that there's that danger of always thinking of cooking with kids as being an afternoon put aside to kind of bake a cake. Just literally getting them, I don't know, rolling some little um, meatballs or shaping your falafel or whatever it might be, just doing a job. Or the other thing I love to do is give a child their kind of signature thing. So it might be making the vinaigrette for a salad or it might be, um, you know, they're always in charge of washing and spinning the salad or or their job is to season the the beans or whatever it might be but even when they're really tiny giving them some kind of sense of um ownership of of something is just fabulous as well as the playing along you know cuz i mean it's like making mud pies children love to make a mud pie so what's the difference you know bring them into the kitchen and actually yeah. get them playing with real food and it's funny because i think you know as yeah. a child we were always told, don't play with your food. You know, it was always terribly. And, and actually now I kind of almost encourage children to play with their yeah. food because it, it creates that wonderful relationship between the food and the child. Taking something like a, a,
0: a brown banana and turning it into a cake, that must be a glorious thing for a small child. Tell us about your final food moment, the banana cardamom and
1: ch- dark chocolate bites. Yes, I've always found it to be absolute magic to turn something which really looks like it's ready for the bin into something utterly delicious. And banana bread is something that I used to make loads of it on the boat, actually. Um, and, and I, I still absolutely love it. But the idea of these little bites is sometimes I really, really just love the idea of a little bite of something really sweet to have with a coffee or to have at the end of a meal. And, um, you know, in a household of three, you don't want to bake a great big cake because then, you know, you have the first slice and perhaps the second slice. And then by the time you've done that, you're thinking... You know, I'm not really that excited about that cake anymore. And it becomes almost a kind of toil to have to get through the rest of it. Whereas these little bites are baked either in little mini muffin tins, but I particularly love those little friand moles, which are like little oval, little lozenges, which suddenly make something like a rotten old banana turned into a cake feel rather indulgent and special. And the combination of cardamom and and banana, for me, is one of those kind of magical marriages. I love those flavours together. And, yeah, the idea of this, this recipe actually came from Richard Burtonay, where I've worked over the years in the Burtonay kitchen. And he, oh, he's a magical baker. And um, the idea of serving these little tiny bites of really indulgent sweetness um, came from him but his were made with a kind of frangipan, whereas mine have wholemeal flour. They have muscovado sugar, and what I always want to say to people is, when you put those wholemeal um, flours into things, it doesn't suddenly make something feel like you've bought it from a health food shop. It actually adds more texture and a kind of nuttiness and just just more um, character to, to a dish. So. I would sort of urge anybody to try these little tiny bites because they are absolutely packed with flavour. And they are, you know, they're not a health snack. They have got sugar in them, but they um, deliver on every level and they get rid of that, that rotten banana. You're just about to head into the summer
0: festival circuit again, aren't you? Where are you going to be? Where can people come and see you?
1: I'm going to be up at the Also Festival in Warwickshire, which is mid-July. And then uh, Ludlow Food Festival, that's a little bit later on. When when you're at these festivals, when you're
0: face-to-face with people, what are the wake-up moments? Give me an
1: example of when somebody has gone, do you know what,
0: that's a game-changer for me.
1: I remember at the Dartmouth Food Festival um, a couple of years ago cooking up um little uh muffins using up the leftover pumpkin say from halloween pumpkins and making these wonderful little spiced pumpkins they had a little bit of um pumpkin muffins they had a little bit of red lentil in them too and you could see that the kids as we were making them were looking a little bit kind of mm, concerned that they weren't really going to want to try them they had a little bit of cheese on the top and then We passed them round the the audience and, yeah, it it was a winner, you know, winner recipe. And I just think it's that idea that just because things are leftovers and just because they're made with frugal ingredients does not mean that they can't kind of deliver on on flavour. It's just about putting some really wonderful spices and a little bit of creativity into things.
0: Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram, I'm at FoodJillysmith and on Substack, where you'll find a little extra bite. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack. I'll see you next week.